Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you always felt a little odd, a little different? The world is crying out for witches to heal and to rebuild. But do you hear its call and will you answer? This is a space for free thinking, where I give you tools to explore and build your craft. We all have a divine spark. Join me each week and grow that spark into a fiery beacon. I am your host Michael Moorcroft and I'll be bringing you a one-on-one guide to all things witchcraft and spirituality. This is The Major's Well. Hey Majors, welcome back to the show. This week I'm going to be looking at arguably one of, if not the most famous goddess in the West, Venus and Aphrodite. And I'm going to be looking at both of them because really you can't look at the history of one without the other. But before I kick off though, what is happening this week? Well, the moon is waxing, and we're actually going to see a full moon on the 6th of April, which is called the Pink Moon, as it's the first moon of the spring season, and references the flowers that are coming into blossom. This moon will be in Libra, giving us the opportunity to appreciate beauty and find balance within our lives. Rituals incorporating this on the 6th would be a good shout, as well as helping anything that's bigger than yourself. And just a side note here, I don't know about anybody else, but I really appreciate spring this year, and I don't know if that's because I'm getting older or because with researching about the Wheel of the Year and the series that I've been doing, I understand it more and I'm tuning into the cycles, but there's a lot of appreciation and anticipation around it this year. So yes, bring on the spring. 29th marks the day when the Terracotta Army was discovered in Cheyenne, China. It's also International Mermaid Day, 
depictions of creatures half human, half fish, date back to ancient Babylon and probably beyond, and they have fascinated us as a culture ever since. Check out your local area and see if you have mermaid folklore around you. It's turkey neck soup day on the 30th. I'm shocked and shaken. Moving swiftly on, it's also the grass is always browner on the other side of the fence. It sounds weird, but this is a day to take stock about how you have it good and where that might be and also showing some gratitude and gratefulness around it. Big fan of that, I think there's a lot of help to that. World Back It Up Day is on the 31st, acting as a reminder to back up your files. I have been there recently, it is horrific. April Fool's Day is on April 1st, and it also marks the Assyrian New Year. It's also Firewalk Day, honouring an ancient practice dating back to at least 1200 BCE that various cultures have links to and used to show their devotion. April 3rd is Fish Fingers and Custard Day, again shocked and shaken, supposedly paying homage to a Doctor Who episode. And on that bombshell, that's what I have for you this week. Now, let's have a look at the Goddess of Love. Our story begins with Uranus and Gaia, heaven and earth personified. They give birth to many children, who the sky actually hides away in earth because he hates them. Gaia doesn't like this and, fed up with Uranus's joyless lovemaking, creates a flint sickle and asks one of her children to castrate him, Kronos or Saturn to the Romans, steps forward and says he will do it. Now that night, as heaven comes to lay upon the earth, Kronos grabs the sickle and castrates him. Flinging his father's disembodied member and testicles away, the blood dripped over the land, creating various monsters and creatures. And finally, with a splash, the bloody parts landed in the sea, near the isle of Scythera, where they remained for some time. Now foam forms around the immortal flesh, the last of Uranus's power combines with the salty foam, and from it grows a maiden that the western wind Zephyros sweeps over. Fully grown and nude, she is the most beautiful being ever created, as well as being awful. Just remember that for later. Making her way to Cyprus, she's clothed by the seasons and they adorn her in beautiful jewellery. The goddess strides across the coastline, and as she does so, flowers spring beneath her feet. She's followed by Himeros, the god of sexual desire, and Eros, the god of carnal love, and enters the assembly of the Greek gods. The gods call her Aphrodite, the foam-born goddess, personifying the generative powers of nature, i.e. the ability to reproduce, and the mother of all living things. The Orphic hymn to Aphrodite says, quote, "'Tis thine the world with harmony to join, for all things spring from thee. O power divine, the triple fates are ruled by thy decree, and all productions lead alike to thee." This hymn praises Aphrodite as more than the goddess of love. It praises her as ruling over the fates and all creations. 
Venus, whose origins partly lie in the Greek Aphrodite, is a deity that we think we all know, embodying love, beauty, and sexuality, and between them the pair give rise to words like aphrodisiac and venereal. But how did the ancients view this goddess? A goddess whose dominion encompassed the word desire and all its turbulent connotations. Let's work backwards. So, Venus is a Roman deity, but the Romans did take inspiration from the Greek Aphrodite. They really admired Greek culture and thought it was sophisticated, which they wanted to emulate. And you see this a lot with new nations. They pick bits from older and more successful ones to appear established. You can see this in America, where there's a lot of Roman symbols used around government departments. So, the Romans take this inspiration from the Greek Aphrodite. But Aphrodite isn't actually native to Greece and developed over many, many centuries, influenced by other goddesses like Astarte, who was worshipped in ancient Syria. Aphrodite's classical sanctuaries were often built over Astarte's bronze and Iron Age shrines. But it's thought that Astarte was actually based on Ishtar, also known as Inanna, who I've done quite an extensive episode on over on my Supercast, which you can subscribe to and listen to the episode through whatever platform that you're listening to this on. It is super easy to set up and you get access to all my bonus content. So, bearing all this in mind, it's thought tales of Anana, Ishtar, and Astarte reached Cyprus via those who travelled there. And Cyprus in ancient times was a crossroads of cultural interaction. It's here where these goddesses mix. But we should also bear in mind that there's already a long tradition of worshipping virility and sexual potency dating back to at least 4000 BCE, long before any Greek arrived on the scene. Now, these imported goddesses, all fiercely jealous with aggressive sexualities, collide with this culture, and an early form of Aphrodite emerges. She's violent, and she's sexually powerful, depicted as part bird, part beast, and part woman. Now, interestingly, in Cyprus, a lot of her worship sites are actually near key copper-producing areas. Copper is abundant on Cyprus, and if you've listened to my Planetary Magic episodes over on my Supercast, you'll know that the metal of Venus is copper. And we also have a tip of the hat to her war streak here, as copper mixed with tin creates bronze, capable of making light, lethal weapons that completely revolutionized ancient warfare. It's also interesting to note that within her mythology, she's married to Hephaestus, or Vulcan, who is famously the Forge God. Now, around 1200 BCE, the Greeks start arriving on Cyprus. It's a crucial port in ancient times, and upon seeing this goddess, they adopt her into their pantheon, naming her Aphrodite and somewhat refining her her violent streak is gone, her altars no longer bear sacrifices, and she's this beautiful, loving, sensual being. But the Greeks didn't fully extinguish her dark side, as some of her epithets show. Aphrodite Aria, 
pops up in Sparta, meaning of Ares or warlike. There's Aphrodite Androthonos, killer of men, as well as Scotia, dark one, Tumbarokos, gravedigger, and Melanus of the Dark Knight. We also see her downgraded and somewhat smeared on account of Homer's telling of Troy, where she basically causes the fall of Troy by effectively staging the whole war to satisfy her ego. We also see the first full-body nude statue of a woman in Greece that pops up around 400 BCE, and it's of Aphrodite. It's called Aphrodite of Cnidos, and it sets a precedent of how the goddess would spend the rest of history being depicted. The goddess loses her potency, and excitement is gained from her alluring body. All of a sudden, she's something to be exploited. It's also around this time that Greek women were very much seen as second-class citizens. Now, the Romans are worshipping a deity that they call Venus, who resides over love, but she was also connected to gardens and cultivated fields as well. Now, she wasn't a major deity in the early part of their history. She doesn't have a festival in her name, and she doesn't have a flamen, which is like a priest who serves a particular deity. But she was honoured by other Latin tribes, and two Latin cities in particular revered her, called Lavinium and Ardea. The latter is thought where the cult travelled from and into Rome. A big catalyst for Venus was the Punic Wars, They kick off, and they're basically a series of battles between the Romans and the Carthaginians. The Romans attribute their victory to the intervention of Venus after the Sibylline Oracle, check out my divination episodes, suggests that if Rome can get Venus on side, they'll win the war. They lay siege to a holy city of Erex, offering to build her a magnificent temple and taking her idol back to Rome, she becomes this mothering figure and the founder of families within the Roman pantheon, and gains the name Venus Genetrix, and she starts stepping onto the main stage. This is combined with around 200 BCE, Rome begins to take over land that Greece had once owned, and in 217 BCE, the Romans declare that Venus and Aphrodite are one and the same. Now, Libitina, possibly an Etruscan goddess of death, or like a grove for the dead, also gets absorbed by Venus and forms a title Venus Libitina. Now, the story of how Venus was born was also adopted from Greek culture, and there are three main versions, one from Homer, one from Hesiod, and a final one from Cicero. So, Homer claims that Aphrodite is the daughter of Zeus and Dion, who's a titaness. Cicero claims her mother is Day, called Himera, and her father is Uranus. Now, it's Hesiod's version that is the most famous, this is the one that the Romans adopt, and it's the one that I told at the top of this episode. Now, according to Roman mythology, Venus is also the mother of Aeneas, a Trojan hero and the founding father of Rome, and the elites of Rome would actually trace their origins to this goddess. Julius Caesar, in particular, promoted the idea that he was descended from her, publicising it on minted coins and building a temple to her in the year he became a dictator. 
so obviously to strengthen his legitimacy and add to his power. He also begins to portray Venus as wearing armour and holding weapons. Now, Venus changes a little bit when Cleopatra comes onto the scene, living in Rome as Caesar's lover. The Romans see Cleo as an embodiment of Venus, and a statue of Cleopatra was actually put in the temple that Caesar had built for Venus. Now, Caesar gets stabbed in the back, you may have heard of that, and Mark Antony steps onto the scene as Cleopatra's second lover. He actually gives Cyprus to Cleopatra as a gift, further strengthening Cleo's link to Venus. Now, by the time Augustus, Caesar's successor, came into power, successfully defeating Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Venus was heavily linked to sex and promiscuity. Now, publicly, he worshipped Venus, as Julius had before him, and remember, we're trying to keep up appearances, we're trying to solidify our newly acquired power. But privately, he found that she represented abhorrent behaviour, and created a policy whereby Roman citizens ought to be morally pure. Now, Venus worship was snuffed out in its entirety in the 4th century, when Emperor Theodosius the Great eradicated pagan worship. A lot of Venus's and Aphrodite's temples become places of worship for the Virgin Mary. And Venus sculptures, they do survive, but many were smashed after claims of them oozing a demonic energy. But this doesn't put an end to her. She flirts with artists throughout the Renaissance, where they competed with one another with how far they could push the boundaries in displaying her sexuality. The models of Venus in these paintings were often sex workers, and there's usually nothing identifying Venus as such other than her nudity. Venus, the sacred figure, is blurred by men's obsession with objectifying women. Then we come to the aftermath of colonial expeditions into Africa, where African women were often called Black Venuses. And one woman stands out in particular, called Sarki Bartman, who was essentially paraded through Europe's capitals in a dehumanising display, so the public could see her pronounced bottom and genitals, garnering her the name of the Hottentot Venus, which is the colonial era term for the indigenous Khoikhoi people of southwestern Africa, and it's considered a very offensive term today. Venus worship also pops up within the estate of Sir Francis Dashwood around the 1740s, where he forms a rich boys club, there's really no other term for it, and they worship Venus through orgies and other questionable rituals, Venus was being used as a cover for men to do seedy things, it was far from sacred, and yeah, it's just old pervy men being old pervy men. But today, the goddess is referenced through pop stars like Lady Gaga in her song Venus, Kylie Minogue with her album of Aphrodite, and Beyonce, where she created a series of goddess-inspired photographs while pregnant. Venus and Aphrodite are used within marketing today to sell everything from sex toys to razor blades to consumers who want a taste of what she embodies, and each year, 200 million roses, her flower, are exchanged for Valentine's Day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. An Aphrodite, who loves laughter and smiles, went to Pathos on Cyprus and her precinct there, with its smoking altar. Here the graces bathed her and rubbed her with the ambrosial oil that glistens on the skin of immortal gods, and then they dressed her in beautiful clothes, a wonder to see. That is a passage from Homer's Odyssey. And I want to look next into the different names for the goddess, because we can learn a lot in the etymology. So the Greeks claim that Aphros is the word for foam, and her name literally means she who is born from the foam, if you remember the myth I opened the episode with. This folk etymology, it's largely been discredited today, and it's more likely to be a derivative of the Phoenician Astaroth or Atate, with roots in the Semitic words meaning bright or shining. We don't know when the name Aphrodite solidifies, but by the Iron Age, the 8th century BCE, it enters the records. Prior to this, she was referred to as the Queen of the Goddesses, sort of highlighting how important she was, or Kypris, the Lady of Cyprus. Now, Venus comes from the Sanskrit Vanas, meaning loveliness, longing, or desire, and more directly, it comes from the Latin Venus, meaning love, but more in an erotic, lustful way. It's also related to venerari, meaning to love or revere, but also, possibly, veneum, meaning poison, potion, charm, and aphrodisiac. Now, an early form of her Roman name appears to be Mercia, a goddess we know very little of, but later this name becomes an epithet of Venus and it links her to Myrtle, her sacred plant. Now, Venus and Aphrodite, they do represent similar but very different things. Aphrodite is the goddess of love, beauty and sexuality. Venus, on the other hand, governs passion, fertility, vegetation and sex workers. She also crosses into the domestic realm as well, The Romans also somewhat restore her war aspect in Venus, which is a link back to her eastern origins, which Aphrodite only flits around. Let's take a look at the sanctuary of Pathos in Cyprus. Now, when the Greeks came to Cyprus around 1200 BCE, a sacred city in the south was built called Pathos. This would become a key site for the goddess, and is referenced by many ancient writers as the navel of the earth. 
It was also a buzzing cosmopolitan centre, mentioned within the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. There's references to golden gates protecting the city, rose gardens, myrtle trees, and lotus ponds, plants that were all woven into garlands within her cults. Opium burners are found throughout her shrines, alongside offerings of bread, cakes, honey, fruit, and flowers. And by the 8th century BCE, she's seen as this life-giving goddess with red breasts, and doves and birds are generally sacred to her, which is a tip of the hat to her Middle Eastern goddesses who she's formed from. Also on Cyprus, we have a rock called the Rock of Aphrodite, marking where she supposedly first came to shore, and lovers today swim around this rock three times for good luck. We also see seashells, they're used in her cult quite extensively, particularly the scallop shell, which could be a reference to her oceanic origins, but also the inside of the scallop has been compared to the vulva and the clitoris. Now with her connection to the ocean, she's also seen as a protector of fleets, and we see a lot of her sanctuaries in port towns, and Pathos is also a port town. She also watches over sex workers, and Euhemerus, the father of Roman poetry, actually suggests that Venus was originally a woman who invented prostitution, and then came to be worshipped as a goddess. Quote, Venus was the first to establish the art of prostitution, and introduced it amongst the women in Cyprus so they could derive profit from their bodies by making them public property. Her temple at Corinth was said to be packed with sex workers to serve the maritime travellers, from North Africa and the Eastern Islands. Vases and metalware depict erotic scenes, both hetero and homosexual. There's also a lot of historical records mentioning sacred prostitution, which is paid intercourse in the context of religious worship used to honour the goddess. And it's very murky. All these accounts are written by men, and there's not a lot of evidence to back it up, and there's a lot of arguments within the academic world as to whether or not this actually happened, because we just don't know. We also know that the goddess was known to take women as lovers as well. Now, not only was Venus Aphrodite a trailblazer of sexuality, but also of sex and gender. Ancient depictions show the goddess with thick facial hair, one of her priests actually appears intersexed, or having a combination of both male and female biological traits. And ancient writers often document of how she can also take the form of a man. Her pronouns also appear fluid. In Athens, a cult was imported from Cyprus called Aphrodite Aphroditos, meaning she-he Aphrodite. I also want to take a look at the myth around one of her most famous lovers, Adonis. So it goes that while she was bending over to kiss her child Cupid, she's pricked by one of his arrows, which as you may be aware, afterwards the first person you gaze at will be the person that you fall in love with. The wound went deep into her heart and she casts eyes over Adonis, who she falls instantly in love with. And the two are actually very happy in love, and everything is going really well, but dreaming of a hunting accident, she warns him not to go hunting, and that she has no power over lions and boars. Remember, she rules over life itself. Ignoring her, he goes hunting anyway, and is gored by a boar in the groin and dies from his wound. 
Now Venus, upon seeing him, tears at her clothes and her hair in utter anguish and beats her breasts. Scooping up some of his blood, she mixes it with nectar, creating a red flower in enemy in his memory. And like Adonis, its blossom is short-lived. But this wasn't enough. Aphrodite begged Zeus to intervene, and he allowed Adonis to spend half of his time above ground and the other half in the underworld. And this myth is very similar to the myth of Anana's lover, Tammuz, which is again a link to her eastern origins. The myth around Adonis gives rise to the festival of Adonia, which honours the death of him. Let's also look at other festivals that pop up around her and ways to worship her. In ancient Rome, they had four main festivals that honoured Venus. Veneralia was dedicated to Venus Veticordia, or Venus who changes hearts, and it took place on April 1st. Now during the festival, the women carried her statue to the men's baths where it was washed and dressed. Then the attendant and the statue was covered in myrtle, which symbolised everlasting love. Libations were poured of poppy milk and honey, and women asked the goddess for guidance within their marriages, romances, and sex lives. The festival was founded on the advice of the Sibylline Oracle, responding after sexual advances had shocked Roman society and actually offended the gods. One of the offences included the vow of chastity being broken by the three Vestal Virgins, a very serious offence. And this festival was also shared with Fortuna, the goddess of luck. On the 23rd of April, we've got Vinalia Urbana, which was a wine festival belonging to primarily Jupiter, but as Venus grew in popularity, she commandeered it. Sex workers assembled before the Temple of Venus offering myrtle and mint, and received blessings in return. And the festival centred really around protecting vineyards. Vinalia comes from the Latin vinum, meaning wine. We've got Vinalia Rusticia, held on the 19th of August. This is Venus's oldest festival and is associated with her form as Venus Obsequence, Venus the Indulgent. The festival was used to placate the weather in order to aid with grape growth. It's a celebration of fertility, at which pious worshippers of Venus offered a female lamb for sacrifice. The 26th of September was the date for the festival of Venus Genetrix, in her role as the mother and protector of Rome. Now in Greece, Aphrodite was celebrated on the 4th of every month, but her annual festival was Aphrodisia, whereby her temples were purified by the blood of doves, an animal which is very sacred to her. Her statues were also washed with water and feasts were held. Dancing and games also took place. It was also traditional to serve in her temples triangular-shaped honey cakes, as well as komodaria, a Greek dessert wine. Myrtle, rose, apple, poppy, pomegranate, just to name a few, these are all sacred to her. And she also has many animals that she watches over. And generally, any animal that pulls a chariot or serves as her messenger are seen as sacred. So sparrows, doves, swans, swallows, and a bird called the Inks. These are quite common sacred animals to her. Blood sacrifices in ancient times, they're not too common, as it was thought it wasn't deemed appropriate as she was the goddess of life and encompassed so many different things. 
The main sacrifices, in inverted commas, consisted mostly of incense and garlands of flowers. It was also quite common for brides to offer her a gift before the wedding, and when girls came of age, they offered their toys to the goddess. Obviously, Venus and Aphrodite can be worked magically for love, but I think a powerful way of working with them is through owning your sexuality and finding power in that and radical self-acceptance. And the wonderful thing about these goddesses is that there's a lot of ancient poetry and hymns that you can use to tailor a ritual around her. Hopefully from today's episode, you can see ways in which you can work with her, if you feel the desire to do so. That is a wrap for today's show, and I hope you've enjoyed it and you've learned something new about Venus and Aphrodite. Just a little shout out, I found the book Venus and Aphrodite, A Biography of Desire by Bethany Hughes to be incredibly useful. It is very well written and I found it so interesting, so if you're interested in learning more about Venus and Aphrodite, definitely check that out. If you are on the market for staying up to date with the podcast, you can follow me on the socials at The Majors Well. But before I go, the poem this week is The Ode to Aphrodite by Sappho, a very prominent female Greek poet, which was quite a challenge to do so at the time. And it's the only poem of this poet to survive in its entirety. Iridescent-throned Aphrodite, deathless child of Zeus, while weaver, I now implore you, don't, I beg you, lady, with pains and torments, crush down my spirit. But before, if you've ever heard my pleadings, then return, as once when you left your father's golden house, you yoked to your shining car, your wing-whirring sparrows, skimming down the paths of the sky's bright ether. On they brought you over the earth's black bosom. Swiftly, then you stood with a sudden brilliance, goddess before me, deathless face, alight with your smile. You asked me what I suffered, who was the cause of my anguish, what would ease the pain of my frantic mind, and why had I called you to my side, and whom should persuasion summon here to soothe the sting of your passion this time, who is now abusing you, Sappho, who is treating you cruelly? Now she runs away, but soon she'll pursue you. Gifts she now rejects, soon enough she'll give them. Now she doesn't love you, but soon her heart will burn, though unwilling. Come to me once more, and abate my torment. Take the bitter care from my mind, and give me all I long for. Lady, in all my battles, fight as my comrade. Peace out, witches, and I'll see you at the crossroads.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.